From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Pava Kid. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Pava Kid wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guest, please visit our website at thepavacate.com and check out our social media pages. My name is Marcus McNeil, a senior editor with The Pavacate. Today, we're going to be talking to Anita Madali, the Assistant Dean of Student Services and Weekend JD. We will be exploring her legal career and how she ended up in the Dean Suite. We also discuss how she plans on transforming her role in the community to meet the ever-changing needs of students. Thanks for agreeing to do this interview, and we are sitting with the Assistant Dean of Student Services and Weekend JD, Anita Madali, right? Correct. Excellent. So I always like to start my interviews sort of in the same place, and that's really just having you tell us about you. Who is Dean Madali? Well, I am from Chicago. I grew up in Rogers Park, actually technically West Ridge, and went to law school about 20 years ago, so I'm aging myself here, (laughs) and was very interested in public interest law, and that was what I pursued following graduation. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked as an Equal Justice Works Fellow, and then clinical professor, as well as um, at the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. And then moved into uh, joining the faculty at Northern Illinois University and directing its legal clinics. So that's sort of my legal background, career trajectory. Yeah. And I'm also a mom. Yeah. And someone who is learning how to knit. Learning how to knit. Yeah. What got you into knitting? I always wanted to learn how to sew. And then when I was in law school, I had a friend who was trying to teach me how to knit, and it didn't go very well. (laughs) And when I started this job, I thought, I need something mindful to do. So I chose knitting and found there was a place near my house that gives lessons. Excellent. Did you ever learn how to sew? No. (laughs) No. I still do not know how to sew. Uh, Fair enough. So that might be the next thing that I learn. Excellent. I've wanted to learn how to sew for a long time just because like I get holes in my jeans and whatnot. And once I just tried to willy-nilly sew holes in my legs together or like sew the whole clothes and somehow sewed the legs together. So I was like, okay, well, obviously I'm not meant to sew uh, (laughs) unless I take a class. Well, as somebody who is not very tall, I wanted it to be able to hem my pants. Wanted to learn to be able to hem my pants. That would be a good skill because I have the same issue. Because sometimes if I buy uh, like 30 length jeans, they're too short. But if I had 32, they're way too long. So I always have to pay to get it done. So yeah, that actually would be a great skill to know how to hem pants. (laughs) That would you You get it. (laughs) So one of these days, so switching. Back to your legal career, what made you want to go to law school in the first place? Was it always in the cards for you, or was Um, there a pivotal moment? I don't know that there was a pivotal moment. There were no lawyers in my family, and no women with professional careers, Mm. and so I I guess I didn't know that much about what it meant to be a lawyer. Mm. What I knew was that growing up in a city like Chicago, 
and seeing segregation within neighborhoods and communities. Um, I knew that I, I wanted to do something that would allow me to give back, to advocate. And so it kind of seemed like law might be the place to do that. Yeah. And so that, that was the reason that I ended up applying to law school. And did, were you, did you come straight through undergrad? I took a year off. Okay. So I'm not from Chicago, so I'm not familiar with the makeup of all the neighborhoods. And you grew up in or around Rogers Park, right? Yeah. So what was the makeup of Rogers Park such that you saw? I mean, I, I know the city is historically segregated by way of the, where folks live. But what was the makeup of Rogers Park and what brought your eye specifically to the, the segregation of the city? Yeah, good question. <laughs> uh, so Rogers Park, there's a large immigrant community. And so I saw just even even within Rogers Park, you know, different different sections where you would find like a particular immigrant group. My father was an immigrant. And so I think for me personally, it makes sense why I ended up going into immigration law. Right. But then also I had a where I went to high school, we were required to do community service throughout the city. And so even beyond my own neighborhood, I saw communities where, you know, people just didn't have the same resources. And even, you know, as a kid riding the red line and seeing how neighborhoods changed and who got off at what stop. And so just kind of paying attention as a child to the world around me, not quite understanding it, but realizing like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. That is awesome. So when you went, because for undergrad, you went to Wisconsin, right? Madison. Um, So then... Were you was the plan always to come back to Chicago, or is it just because that's where you got into law school? Uh, so I I only applied to one law school in Chicago, <laughs> thinking that I would I would leave. Yeah. And so I did get into Northwestern, and right. they they gave me more money than other schools, right. and so that really made that's my always, decision yeah. for me. That yeah. money helps make many decisions <laughs> for sure. So going then into the public interest arena. You also went into teaching and the administrative side of school quite rather quickly. So what piqued your interest in not just uh, public service in terms of your legal career, but also then doing like clinical education and now being a dean of student services? Yeah, I can't say that my career trajectory was very planned. (laughs) And so it was kind of a combination of trying different things out and also responding to life. So So when I did my Equal Justice Works Fellowship, it was at the Children and Family Justice Center, Mm -hmm. which is part of Northwestern's legal clinic. So in doing that, um, I was also supervising law students and really enjoyed that. I liked the combination of being able to work on cases, but to do so alongside law students. Because for me, that was the best part of law school. Um, And it really opened my eyes to career possibilities and to what I enjoyed. And so I, I liked providing that opportunity 
to students. Right. And so that was kind of how I began to take an interest in clinical teaching. Yeah. And so I was representing women and children who were seeking asylum mm-hmm. as well as you know, other forms of immigration relief that may have been available to them. Mm-hmm. And I was also representing unaccompanied minors who were being held in a secure detention facility. Right. Um, and so I was seeing the intersection of criminal law and immigration and its impact on children. Yeah. And so while I was doing direct representation, I was also observing kind of these larger, more systemic issues. Right which led me to apply for a position at the Mexican-American Legal right. Defense yeah. and Educational Fund. Okay. And so I wanted to see, you know, if I liked impact litigation. Yeah. And so I did that for a little bit, but my first husband, who had a chronic condition, mm. was getting progressively more ill. Yeah. And I was pregnant. Yeah. And so um, I needed to you know make a decision about how i was going to support my family and at that time health insurance we didn't have the affordable care act right and so i was kind of weighing all of these things and decided to take a position at depaul um, to start up a poverty law clinic there okay and when i started there i learned about the process to get on the track to receive or apply for a tenure track position. Yeah. So I was kind of doing all of this to bring, I mean, in all honesty, to bring more stability to my own life, right. my family's life. Right. And so while I was there, after I had given birth to our daughter, mm-hmm. um, my husband died. Yeah. And then my brother died uh, uh, six yeah. weeks later. <laughs> so I was really kind of at this point where you know, my my world, yeah. all of my identities, professional identity, personal identities kind of falling apart. But I had done all of the interviewing at different schools mm-hmm. and Northern Illinois was actually hiring a little bit later. Yeah. Um, and they were looking for a director of clinics. And yeah. so they called that spring, you know, it, it made sense yeah. um, at the time doing litigation would have been really challenging right. uh, as a single mom. Right. So I took the position at NIU yeah. and did that for about 10 years. Okay, yeah. yeah. And what did you teach outside of, was it just the clinical teaching or did you have a, like more doctrinal type of courses? Yeah, so they had just kind of created this position for a director of clinics and so it wasn't entirely I, I think they were open to kind of what that might look like. Right. So I ended up, one of the things they were looking to do was to expand their clinical programs. Mm-hmm. And so I helped build a medical legal partnership clinic. Okay. And in fact, we hired uh, somebody from who graduated from Loyola, yeah. who is still running that clinic. Excellent. So I was overseeing it, but I was teaching immigration law. I taught constitutional law too. At one point I taught um, the civil externship course and oversaw that program. And uh, I taught some 
Horses in Asylum Law, right. uh, Children and Immigration was another one. So yeah. But kind of all generally within the immigration field. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. That is very cool. And if you don't mind me asking, you said your father was an immigrant uh, yeah. from where? In Spain. The Spain. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. Again, if you don't mind me asking, um, uh, what brought your father to the United States? Was it was he fleeing something, um, or was it he just wanted to come to the states? Yeah. So, my father was born at the start of the Spanish Civil War. Okay. <laughs> And uh, his his family didn't have much in the way of resources, mm-hmm. but he had an opportunity to study with the Jesuits in Spain, okay. and so that was how he was able to be educated there. And so he was kind of on a track to become a priest, oh, wow. and so he came to the U.S. in the 60s okay. to study with the Jesuits at Loyola. Oh, wow. And um, while he was here, he determined that the priesthood may not be the thing for him. Fair enough, fair enough. (laughs) And so a few years after that, he met my mother, Mm -hmm. um, who was from the south side of Chicago. Okay. And they got married and had four kids. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That is very cool. So jumping forward then to coming to Loyola, uh, which sort of seems like a cosmic full circle moment. (laughs) Uh, So what brought you to Loyola? Were you specifically looking to come to Loyola or was it just, again, looking for career opportunities and this was available? So so while I was at NIU, I became interested in attending Divinity School. Yeah. And that was a three-year program at the University of Chicago, a multi-religious program. And I was interested in exploring questions that weighed heavily on me, both because of my personal and professional experiences, mm-hmm. questions around powerlessness. Yeah. We, we go to law school to problem solve, right. to fix, and also there are times when certain things can't be fixed. So I had questions related to power and grief and kind of not only looking externally at systems, but how systems inform the way we move in the world. So in some sense, it was to look internally and to think more deeply about what it means to care both at an individual level and collectively. And so I just, I happened to see the posting for the position at Loyola. Mm -hmm. And I think I was um, drawn by by the mission, both the anti-racist mission Mm -hmm. and a mission of care. Yeah. And I think care is actually quite difficult and complicated and can be precarious and so you know I was I was interested in exploring what that might look like and so I applied and was just I just felt like this was a good place to integrate some of this background Mm -hmm. within an institution that has this kind of mission. Gotcha. So the fact that it was a Jesuit institution was 
it being a Jesuit institution have a bearing on your decision or was it just the Jesuit teachings that sort of aligned with what you were looking for, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think it's the teachings. The teachings, okay. Yeah. That's fair enough. And do you have, are you a person of faith? I am. Okay. Yeah. And is this, thinking through, is this the first institution you've worked for that has had a religious, a religious institution? Yeah, it is. Uh, And do you find that to be different in a professional way, or I guess that sort of bridges a bit personal and professional, to be in in part of a religious institution, even though you're not in a religious position. Yeah. Repeat the question, actually. I think yeah. I understood So it. I guess I'm asking, is working for, particularly being a person of faith, is working for a, a religious institution, does it feel different than working for other um, non-religious institutions, even though your role isn't inherently religious itself? Right. I think it does. Yeah. I think I can bring that that part of me into the space mm. and and so to me it feels like a bit more of I guess an integration yeah. uh, and so so yeah I think it, it does feel different yeah okay excellent so switching more to your role specifically here uh, so you're the Dean of Student Services mm-hmm. and also over the weekend program and those used to be two different roles so you have a, a broad swath of experience. So how do you feel like your past, both personal in terms of losing your husband and your brother, but also just your very professional experience, how do you feel that prepares you best for this role and to support students, for example? Yeah, I, um, I mean, I think I'm still learning mm-hmm. the culture of the institution. Mm-hmm. I'm still learning what, you know, what, what might work well here, what yeah. doesn't. Yeah. But I think in terms of my background, I think it's I think there's a lot that can be useful to this role in being present with others yeah. through difficult moments. Yeah. And sometimes those things can be remedied or fixed and sometimes they can't and being able to to see that and to name that being honest about what I can do for students and can't which is hard and so you know so I think my own my own self-reflective work is really to to be able to be present in a space that can feel quite at times difficult yeah. <laughs> and you know and sometimes that's hard i think also understanding uh, university processes right uh, so i spent 10 years at a university and yeah. two of those years in a dean of students role yeah and so really having an understanding of the kinds of processes that that can be helpful yeah. for students yeah. if you know if they're well defe- developed and efficient right. and kind of kind of knowing some of some of what what goes into this role having right. that background already right and also you know being being a student both having gone through law school right. and then gone through a master's program yeah. while being a parent and so so I guess I bring 
all of those perspectives. Right. Uh, and so how do you best position your team to be there for students, both when they're going through something personal, like say the loss of a parent that I experienced myself last semester, but also just like life, you know, where you have the, the conflict in the Middle East that has creates very deep emotional um, issues for students. Or, you know, last year we had a lot of issues with uh, students, student groups bringing certain speakers on campus that caused conflict. So how do you best position the team to be supportive of students and making students feel sort of safe and heard, but also, you know, following uh, university policy, which sometimes can make it feel like administrations falling behind, simply saying, well, our policy is, and, and yeah. but not being supportive of students. Yeah, that it gets at the heart of what's complicated <laughs> yeah. about the role. So the first way is one of the things we've tried to do at the start of this academic year is mm-hmm. make it clear, hopefully it's clear, <laughs> but maybe it's not, um, to students uh, who they need to contact for what. So, for instance, Medis um, is primarily responsible for accommodations, implementing testing accom- accommodations. Uh, Radhika is overseeing student organizations. We developed a new uh, funding allocation committee so that student groups are aware of both the amount of funding and the process for requesting funding. Yeah. And then that committee makes decisions. Uh, Mary Daniels is our newest hire who is overseeing the weekend JD program. Right. And then um, some of the areas that I'm the contact for are like character and fitness issues. Um, if students are requesting a leave of absence, mm-hmm. they would go through uh, and meet with me. Mm-hmm. So that's the first way, just right. having uh, a point of contact. Right. I yeah. think and is, that's important. Last helpful. year, a lot of students were frustrated because they didn't, for a lot of people, that person was Dean Giselle, obviously your predecessor. Yeah. Um, and so people, like if she wasn't the person to go to, then they were like, well, where do I go? And that created a lot of frustration. So that is important, certainly important. Right. Um, that's understandable. Yeah. And then I guess the second way is, I think being honest, and you know, in terms of you know when world events happen, yeah. trying to be as honest as we can about what we are able to do as yeah. administrators and what we're not able to do. Right. And I, I would say that's the hardest part of the role. Yeah. Um, and. And that we are accountable to all students right. and and to the administration. Right. And so, you know, when you are accountable to a lot of different people, yeah. then then it, it does become more complex. Yeah. And so trying to let students know that we we are here to provide the support that we can provide. Right. But I do recognize that, you know, that that may not feel like enough. Right. You've been in the role now for roughly six months or so. So 
and this may actually kind of be a self-answering question, but because you're new, do you feel like, new to the community, do you feel like that creates more challenges in terms of building trust just with the student body that will come with time? Or do you have a secret sauce that allows you to build, <laughs> <laughs> build trust quicker? <laughs> I wish I had a secret sauce. <laughs> um, I, I think it takes time. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I learned from doing hospital chaplaincy work mm-hmm. is you can enter a patient's room, but you never know if you are going to be the person that that patient needs. Mm-hmm. Could be another member of the team, could be somebody else. And so I take that perspective yeah. of I, I am here to be present for students yeah. and I'm here to be rejected by students. That's fair enough. And, yeah. that, and that's okay. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, the being in a position where or just recognize, I guess there's probably a bit of power in recognizing that you can't be everything for everyone. And so there will be times you'll be rejected and it's it's not necessarily because of you, it's just maybe you're not right for the moment or for that person. Right, exactly. Right. No, that's, that's, uh, that is excellent. Going more into your specific role, what do you hope to create from this role or like looking forward five or 10 years? What legacy are you hoping to create within this position and what mark you want to leave on the community within this role? Wow. <laughs> I have to do my, my goals for my <laughs> uh, first review. And <laughs> so I'm thinking maybe, maybe I should have done that first. I think this is a really challenging time, and it has been a challenging time for a few years now for, for students in particular. Yeah. And especially for students who are coming into a career where they want to see change because change (laughs) is desperately needed. And also because of that, I think that there's internally struggles around like how the world has affected, affected students. And so I think I think if I could do anything, and I don't know how this would take place, I don't think I've thought about it long enough, but to find a space for, for students to have a way to also think deeply about what their, what their commitments are mm-hmm. and how they will move in the world professionally mm-hmm sort of some of the internal work in conjunction with looking externally mm-hmm. at these systems that we're all a part of in right. some way or right. another. You know, I think I think it takes a lot of fortitude and it's challenging, but to be working through it collectively, yeah. I think is quite powerful and so I guess finding ways to create those spaces for students you know I'm certainly not not there yet that's sort of like long term more immediate is developing some of these (laughs) processes and you know taking in student feedback about things that could be improved Mm -hmm. um, you know thinking through just how to make information more accessible right. uh, to students. Yeah. 
but it, you know, I'm still, I'm still learning. So I don't know if you ask me two months from now, <laughs> maybe it'll different. be different. Yeah. No, fair enough. And sort of speak, sticking to a point that you just brought up, but in the way that the wor- students sort of interact with the world, you've worked directly with students for a long time. Have you seen that change over time? Because I feel like in my classes, sometimes I feel students are reluctant to engage with ideas or views that aren't aligned with their own in a vigorous way. And so I don't know if that's accurate, because again, I'm, I only have the one experience of law school, but you've seen it over different institutions and over a longer period of time. So ha- has there been a shift in the way that students interact with the world? I think so. I think in-person engagement um, is more is more difficult, and I do I do think that there is some fear, at least what I observed when I was teaching, a fear of of saying the wrong thing or contradicting yourself or even being unsure right. about a position. Yeah, and again, I that's hard. Yeah. It's a hard place to be, and so, and and I think that, yeah, and on some level it can affect connection. Yeah, no, that's fair. I imagine the pandemic, in part, had because you know to once we started coming back from the pandemic, it seemed like a lot of people forgot how to truly interact with and connect in person in a very stark way in some in some aspects. And probably I felt like that was the most surprising thing, even outside of sort of the law school environment, just like people forgetting how to connect with neighbors, for example, and, yeah. um, and being more weary of strangers. Some, you know, obviously I think we live in a world where so much is happening, it, it's easy to become weary of strangers, but I think the pandemic exacerbated that. For sure. Yeah. Well, so is there anything, as we've had this discussion, that that you've thought about and wanted to share or anything that uh, you want to share with whomever may be listening, students or uh, in the broader community? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think just that I am here and available yeah. and and our team, our team really is working very hard. There, There's a lot that student services handles. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I, I would say come visit us <laughs> if you'd like. Yeah. yeah. I can't think of anything else. Fair enough. And I always end all my interviews. What's something that people will be surprised to learn about you? Are you a world award winning skydiver? Or <laughs> no, I I will not I will never skydive. <laughs> I love to travel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. That that's a mystery to anyone. Where's been your favorite place you've traveled to? I when I was in law school, I had the opportunity to go to Uganda, mm-hmm. actually with Professor Garrity. Okay. Um, and so that was an amazing experience. Yeah. Uh, I love visiting my where my father is from. Yeah. Was from in Spain and seeing my family. Yeah. So that's the northwestern part of of the country. Yeah. The region is Asturias. Okay. Um, it's not a place that tourists typically go to. Fair it's enough. kind of rainy along mm-hmm. the Atlantic. Yeah. But it's beautiful. Yeah. A beautiful place for hiking yeah. as well. Because of Pyrenees? Yeah. 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 Because I was in, I studied abroad and was in the southwest part of France. It was sort of in that, along that same region. Yeah. Never made it across the border though. Beautiful country. Yeah. So you speak Spanish though? 
I do. That's all from us here at The Pavocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepavocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepavocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Pavocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Naka Ugu and Andy Vandenbush. Our senior editors are Casey Callahan and me, Marcus McNeil. Our associate editors are Johannes Alvarez-Rivero, Karan Kushal, Maris Medina, and Ben Recht. Special thanks to Associate Director of Student Affairs, Professor Radhika Sutherland, and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support for making this show possible. From Loyola Chicago School of Law, this has been The Pavocate.